I wanted to begin here because not only does it does it set out, as we saw from 19.5, the creator-creature distinction, but also the moral outflows of that truth um, found in the Ten Commandments, especially the first two for our purposes tonight. Yes, the Ten Commandments were given to a particular people, Israel, under a particular covenant, that is the Mosaic Law Covenant, and therefore we who have trusted Christ are not, um, for that reason, not obligated to obey all of the law of Moses. I mean, there are laws in the whole law that cover every area of life, society and everything, and we're not a theocracy or anything anymore. So, But while we may not be obligated to obey specific laws in this, in this whole law, the moral law, the moral foundation that undergird all these different laws in the law of Moses are still binding on us because the moral foundations of the law of Moses are um, rooted not in a covenant that God was making, but rooted in, his, in who he is. They're rooted in, 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 in God himself, and hence they never change and are binding over us, which is why practically all of the, practically all of the Ten Commandments are um, repeated again in the New Testament in some way. So, uh, and it's binding in the new covenant. So it was wrong to steal and to murder and to commit adultery in the old covenant, and it's wrong to steal and murder and commit adultery in the new covenant. It was, it's right to honor your father and mother in the old covenant. It's right to honor your father and mother in the new covenant, right? With that said, we come back to the passage we just read, and, and it is a moral, what we're, what we're drawing out of this is it is a moral truth and obligation for all generations, for all time, in all places, that we have no other gods before him. Before the creator, and before there means besides. We're to have no other god besides him. Um, and in the words of the second commandment, that's, that was the first commandment, no other gods. In the words of the second commandment, we're not to make or to have any images of the creator God in our worship of him. The first two commandments are two distinct commandments. They are not, uh, it's not as if they're two different ways of saying the same thing. Like, it's not like commandment one, don't have any other gods. Commandment two, no, really, don't. Um, it, it, in the first, it's no other gods or images of gods to worship. And in the second, it's no images of him in our worship. Okay. Um, but I included both of these commandments in our foundational text uh, because while they are two different commandments, they both pertain to idolatry. Uh, in that, the first is idolatry, simply put. If you have other gods besides him, that's idolatry, simply put. And the second leads to it, Right? Um, if, if, if we start trying to make images of the Lord God in our worship, it is but a short step to idolatry, right? So it leads to it, in addition to it just being improper worship of him. It's improper because no image we create can capture his whole glory. Any image we make of him is inadequate to who he is, and therefore it's, 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 it's not him, right? Having said that, we need to be clear on what do we mean by idolatry? Um, John Piper helpfully says that idolatry, quote, 
starts in the heart. Craving, wanting, enjoying, being satisfied in anything that you treasure more than God. Okay? And he says an idol is the thing. It is the thing loved or the, or the person loved more than God, wanted more than God, desired more than God, treasured more than God, enjoyed more than God. Okay? So what I want to do for the remainder of our time together is this. If you're taking notes, first, I want to say a word about idolatry in the Old Testament. Idolatry in the Old Testament. Second, idolatry in the New Testament. Surprise. Third, what about idolatry today? And fourth, why is it so dangerous? One, idolatry in the Old Testament. Two, idolatry in the New Testament. Three, idolatry today. Fourth, why is it so dangerous? And then we'll spend some time in prayer at the end. So let's dig in and think first about idolatry in the, in the, in the Old Testament. More than likely, when we think about idolatry in the Bible, just a, you know, describe idolatry in the Bible. If somebody just came up and told you that. Uh, our minds sort of immediately gravitate toward Old Testament. At least mine does. Um, there are scores of passages in the Old Testament that talks about the idolatry of all the nations around Israel. Uh, and hence, constant warnings for Israel not to be like them. Um, and, and the first of all the commandments given to Israel is, that, is for them to flee idolatry, basically. Have no other gods besides me. It was already in a reality in the world of Genesis, not even, to, to, um, not even in Exodus, but in Genesis it was already a reality. Abraham was born in a, a, a pagan who worshipped other gods before God called him and revealed his word to him. Um, and uh, in Genesis 31, you have the story of uh, Jacob wanting to go and marry uh, yeah, Rachel, you know, and like, and like you got Rachel stealing her father Laban's household gods before she goes. I mean, they, these, these, yeah, you just have this, this picture of he just got these idols in his home and she steals them before she goes. And it was just simply a part of the ancient world. And hence, God in his covenant given through Moses says that he forbids it among his people. But you aren't even all the way out of this narrative. Right, You know, Genesis 20 starts the law, but the law goes for the next several chapters. You're not even out of this narrative in Exodus 32, and you have the story of Moses' brother Aaron, right, fashioning a golden calf out of all the people's jewelry in an effort to picture in visual form the God who had just brought them out of Egypt. Uh, if you're looking at Exodus 32, you have... He makes it, and, and uh, in verse, I said, uh, yeah, yeah, so uh, Exodus 32, yeah, when he, he makes it, and in verse 4, he, may, he makes it, and he says, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You know, so the question, a lot of people think he's making an idol that's somebody else than God, that he's worshiping a pagan god when he made that, that golden calf. I don't think that's what he's doing there. He makes this golden calf, and he says, yes, these are your gods who brought you out of Egypt. But if you look at verse 5, he says, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Covenant name. So 
In Aaron's mind, I'm convinced from the passage, his, his intent was not to abandon the Lord who had just brought them out of Egypt and miracles before them. Hence, he said there will be a, a, a feast of the Lord, his covenant name, the next day. But, but he attempted to picture the Lord in an image of the golden calf, which would have been, com- and, he, and, and used an image that would have been common in the nations around them to picture their gods, a, a calf or a bull. It symbolized strength, projected strength. But it, it, that, this event inevitably led Israel into idolatry, away from the Lord. Not just worshiping the Lord according to foreign images, but worshiping foreign gods. Trusting them, praying to them, serving them, hoping in them. And we don't have to turn to all the passages, but just walk through your Old Testament story. And you get to Kings and Chronicles, and you have... Uh, Practically all of the kings of Israel, most of the kings of Judah, wicked, idol-worshiping kings, led the people into, into idol worship. Hence, both were carried off into captivity. And, they, they, and, and it don't, don't just don't sanitize that. They led the people into wicked idolatry. I mean, led them into the, into the worship of Baal and the, and the practices that came along with that. Molech, Molech, and, the, and the, 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 the practices that came with that included child sacrifice. That was going on in ancient Israel. And you see it all through the prophets, particularly in Elijah and Elisha, and the prophets of Baal, right? You see it in all the writing prophets, in the major and minor prophets. Let me just have you turn to one. The most, probably the most classic Old Testament passage in the, in the prophets about idolatry is Isaiah chapter 44. Isaiah 44. You might, when you get there, you might want to put a bookmark in it because we're going to come back to it again toward the end. Isaiah 44. And I want to read a passage beginning in verse 9. And the Lord speaks, he's speaking to his people about the folly, the foolishness of their idolatry. And he says in Isaiah 44, beginning in verse 9, All who fashion idols are nothing. And the things that they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses, now right there, the witnesses right there is referring to the idols that they made. Their witnesses neither see nor know that they may be put to shame. Who fashions a god or casts an idol that is profitable for nothing? Behold, all his companions shall be put to shame, and the craftsmen are only human. Let them all assemble. Let them stand forth. They shall be terrified. They shall be put to shame together. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with hammers and works it with his strong arm. He becomes hungry, and his, and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line, marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man. With the beauty of a man to dwell in a house, he cuts down cedars, or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar, and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes part of it 
and he warms himself. He kindles a fire and he bakes bread. And he also makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and he falls down before it. Half of it he burns over the, in the fire. Over the half he eats meat. He roasts it and is satisfied and he warms himself and says, Aha, I'm warm. I've seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol. And falls down to it and worships it. He prays to it and says, Deliver me for you are my God. God's just making fun of them, right? That's the classic image of idolatry in the Old Testament. An idol carved out of wood or stone, worshipped as a god, prayed to and trusted in as a god. By the way, that kind of idolatry is still very prevalent all over the world. God, through Isaiah, shows how foolish that is, though. Same wood. Half of it he uses for a fire to bake bread. other half he worships. Half, he burns half of it, he worships half of it. And it's this image of idolatry in the Old Testament that, that m- makes some people wonder where idolatry went when you came to the New Testament. Right? Like, some people don't believe that the New Testament has the same kind of focus on idolatry as, as in the Old Testament. It seems to be everywhere in the Old Testament. I don't see the New Testament talking about it so much. But I don't know if that's altogether true. I do think we see it in the New Testament, just not always in the crass way that we see it in the Old. Let's see that for a second. Let's turn turn our thoughts to the, you might, again, you might want to hold your place here in Isaiah 44, but let's, let's think about the New Testament for just a second. Of course, you do see it in the crass kind of way in the New Testament in places. Think about the book of Acts. And uh, the clearest example being in Acts 17 when Paul was in Athens, Greece, And in Acts chapter 17, verse 16, it specifically says that Paul's spirit was provoked within him. Why? Why was his spirit provoked in Acts 17, 16? Because he saw that the city, Athens, Greece, was full of idols. And he later tells them, uh, let's see, he he says... uh, He addresses, he said in verse 22 and following, I perceive that in every way you're very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. So there's idols everywhere in Athens. And you flip back a few pages to Acts chapter 14, and they're in Lystra. And in Acts chapter 14, when Paul and Barnabas are at Lystra, they heal a man, a crippled man, and the people saw it, and they thought that Paul and Barnabas were Greek gods who had come down to earth. They thought they, thought, uh, they were Hermes and Zeus, and they wanted to offer sacrifices to them. Paul wasn't having any of that, though. But out of, outside of Acts, we saw that the, the last time I, I spoke um, about a month ago in CBS, we talked about Romans chapter 1. When in Romans chapter 1, Paul talks about how people all over the world, as he puts it in Romans 1.23, people all over the world exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. In verse 25, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. All over the world. Paul was not so naive, though, as to think that idolatry only existed in the world of unbelievers outside the church. Uh, He had strong warnings 
against idolatry even among believers in the church. And not just Paul. I should have mentioned already that Jesus famously in, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, 24, warns against treating money as a god. Mammon, he called it, which is a more expansive term for riches and material wealth and possessions. But in a similar way, just jot these references down, Paul talks in Philippians 3.19 about people who make our stomach our God. Their belly is their God. In other words, their appetites, who their lusts, their desires, uh, their appetites above all else. That's their God. They find their pleasure there instead of the Lord. Or Colossians 3.5 says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. That's Colossians 3.5. Idolatry still existed in the New Testament, even among believers. How? Maybe not among the believers in carved wood or stone, household gods that you put on the mantle, but it existed in sexual immorality. It existed in impurity. It existed in evil passions, evil desires, covetousness. In that, he is saying that even when they aren't carved out of wood and stone, idols still exist in the world because idols really exist in our hearts. That's what he's saying. That's even the Old Testament's point. Even in the Old Testament, when it's talking, that Isaiah 44 passage, it's, it's not that idols, its point is that idols, even though you see them, they really don't have an existence in the world. Right? We make them. We make them. We project them, and they, there they are. That's why idolatry is a distortion of the creator-creature distinction. Because rather than worshiping the creator and his glory, we imagine and worship all kinds of lesser glories instead. And those are idols. And so, when we ask the question about does idolatry still exist today, We've seen it in the Old Testament, the New Testament. Does it still today? When you ask that question in light of what we just saw in the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's no question that it does. There's no question that idolatry still exists in and out of the church. We are swimming in a cultural sea of idolatry and doing so willingly, right? Because our hearts are eaten up with it too. John Calvin said in his Institutes of the Christian Religion, man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. Man's mind, full as it is of pride and boldness, dares to imagine a God according to its own capacity. We are a perpetual factory of idols. What does that look like today? What does it look like? It could be, it could be anything, seriously anything without question sex is an idol it always has been and the prevalence of the struggle with pornography suggests that that idol is only getting stronger and stronger and stronger money and comfort and prosperity is an idol we trust it we work hard for it we spend money to have more money we despair if we don't have it Social media exposes our idols. 
and sort of is itself also an idol. And often the idol that social media exposes is that our own image is our idol. How people see us, that they see us. <laughs> okay. I saw some girls in a coffee shop the other day. I swear they spent 10 to 15 minutes, 10 to 15 minutes taking pictures of each other. I'm talking repositioning, switching seats, tilting heads this way, tilting head that way. Oh, that's good. And then over and over and over again to get the perfect pictures to post. Y'all, that's not life. That's not life. That is, that is a fictional world. I'm just going to tell you. That's a fictional world that we beat ourselves to death to make and to maintain, present to the world for approval. And that praise, when you get it, is empty as all get out because you, you had to work so hard to get everything just right, which apparently isn't the normal you, which is, by the way, just fine. And it's not just girls. Uh, here's a passage from a great book that I commend to you. If you've been here uh, in our college ministry for quite some time, you may have heard me read this before. It's worth reading again. Uh, the book is Recapturing the Wonder. Recapturing the Wonder by Mike Cosper. Let me just story time with Kevin. Here we go. He said, uh, I witnessed a ritual sacrifice in the middle of a cool third-wave coffee shop the other day. It's the sort of place that attracts herds of bearded hipsters and where they brew your coffee by hand one cup at a time. I was sitting at a long row of benches against the wall, watching the crowd as they ordered, mingled, and eventually collected their meticulously crafted drinks from a stern-faced barista wearing an ironic T-shirt and a fedora. A guy in his 20s, wearing skinny jeans, a plaid shirt, and a beanie, which might as well have been the clientele's uniform, came in carrying a heavy book. It looked like a nice academic volume, hardcover, black cloth binding, nice paper. He ordered and sat at a table near the middle of, a shop, of the shop, scanning his phone while waiting for his drink to come up to, at the bar. After collecting it, he returned to the table near the center of the room and began his rather embarrassing and earnest religious display. He was arranging his book and his latte so that he could take a picture of them with his phone. He spent five minutes doing this, and I assure you that although five minutes might seem like a very long time to spend doing something like this, I'm certain that it was five minutes because I clocked him, which says something about me, I know. He tried capturing the image with the book on its side next to the latte, and then he tried a few with the spine open to hold the book upright and the latte in front of it. He wasn't finished. He then attempted several shots with the coffee cup perched on top of the book, but I'm guessing here the light wasn't good enough to capture both the latte art and the title of the book. Eventually, he started taking images with the book in his hand, including a few attempts to, without the latte at all. I began to worry about his latte growing cold and the foam turning dry and ugly. 
Eventually, he captured an image with the book on its side, propped up by his hand at, at an angle behind the cup. He tapped the phone screen for a while, editing and posting the photo online. Finally, he set his phone down and began to drink his latte. Then he opened the book. Now, here's the best part. I swear he looked at the book for at least, at most, 45 seconds. He flipped it open, thumbed a page or two, his eyes blank and disinterested. Then he closed it and pulled out his phone again to see what kind of response the image got. A moment or two later, my wife texted me. I, I alerted her about the keen observation I was making at the coffee shop, top, she, shop, coffee shop. She told me to get back to writing. Then she asked me which shop I was in, and I told her, and moments later, she texted me the image the guy had posted to Instagram, which blew my mind. You're like Batman, I said. She took this for high, the high praise it was. Only, the, only when I saw the image, though, did I notice the title of the book. It was John Frame's book, The Doctrine of the Word of God. Perhaps it would have been only slightly more ironic if the book had been Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death. But this one was nearly perfect. A book about the primacy of God's word as a prop in a social media post. Religion is the business of appeasing gods. In the old days, you'd take some unfortunate animal to a temple, give it to a priest, and a priest would dispatch of it before, for you before the watchful eyes of whatever god, goddess, or demigod was in attendance. Hopefully, if the animal was in good enough condition, or if the god, goddess, or demigod was in a good enough mood, the priest would return with a blessing and sending you on your way with the knowledge that you'd satisfy him, her, or it. If you were a true believer, the whole thing was done with a lot of love, care, and attention. And although most of us don't attend temples or make flesh and blood sacrifices, the religious impulses that drive all that activity are deeply human and in inescapable. These days, our sacrifices are virtual. We take an image, we type up a few thoughts, we edit and crop and shape them until they're just right, the finest specimen we can offer, and we extend them via digital mediators to a pantheon of little gods that await to judge our work. If we gain their favor, they award us with likes, favorites, comments, or repostings. If not, the results can be the pain of an echoing silence, or worse, we might incur their wrath. all felt that to quote Piper one more time what is an idol well it's the thing it's the thing loved or the person loved more than God wanted more than God desired more than God treasured more than God enjoyed more than God it could be a girlfriend it could be good grades it could be the approval of other people it could be success in business it could be sexual stimulation it could be a hobby or a musical group that you're following or a sport or your immaculate yard he says I was looking for some yard stuff the other day and I clicked on a video ad for a yard service and three people came on and all of them made the point that this yard service enabled them to brag that they had the best yard in the neighborhood and I thought what a motivation <laughs> I want to be number one in green grass. So that could be an idol. Or your own looks could be an idol. It could be anything. So idolatry is, is, is not going anywhere. Right? It, is, it is here as, it, as much as it ever was in the Old and New Testaments. But let me just, before we close, I want to say a word about why it's so dangerous. Okay. Yeah, why is it so dangerous? Why are we spending so much time talking about this? Well, the obvious reason that, that it's dangerous is because it can be damning for eternity to the unrepentant. That's reason. That's the first reason. 
there's another danger to idolatry that we don't need to miss. Before you go back to the Isaiah 44 passage, I want you to turn to Psalm 115. And then we'll come back to Isaiah 44. Psalm 115. And in this psalm, the psalmist is comparing the Lord God to idols. We'll read the first eight verses. Psalmist begins in verse 1. Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. For the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness, why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. Now look at how he describes these idols. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. They do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Did you catch that last part? Those who make the idols become like them. Those who trust them become like them. How? What are they described like? Blind and deaf spiritually blind and deaf. And if you think that this psalm is just a, a one-off in the Old Testament or in the Bible, you're wrong. Flip over again to Isaiah 44. And again, we're going to read this whole passage. Again, we already read the, the whole comparison between the guy who's making an idol. But I want to draw your attention one more time, first of all, to, to verse 9, the beginning of that passage. Remember, remember how it began. All who fashion, fashion idols are nothing. And the things they delight in do not profit. Their witnesses, and right there, that's, that's referring to the idols. The idols neither see nor know. They, they don't see, they don't know that they may be put to shame. So the idols are blind and know nothing. Now look down at the end of the passage in verse 18. And now in verse 18, they're talking about those who worship the idols that they have made. And it says of them, the worshipers, they know not, nor do they discern. For he has shut their eyes so that they, the worshipers, cannot see in their hearts so that they cannot understand. The worshipers become as blind, spiritually blind and as spiritually dead as the idols they worship. The longer we persist in idolatry, whatever that idol is, right? The longer we persist in it, the harder the spiritual callous grows on our hearts toward the Lord. And our love for him grows weaker and weaker and we become less and less feeling of his grace and even his warnings. But God, in his goodness and grace, tells us these things, right? 
to wake us up out of our half-heartedness and our stubbornness and our ignorance, to repent. So for the next few minutes, I want you to find one partner or two and to the level you're comfortable with, um, pray together and pray prayers of repentance of our idols. I don't know what, I don't, I don't, it, I'm not, I'm not, I don't assume it's all, it's the same for all of us. I don't. Probably as many different people, as many different idols we have in this room. And you know what it is. I will say it sort of can go a long way in sort of breaking the, breaking the, um, the strength that, that that idol has over you to say it out loud you know if only because if your idol has been your self image and you were I promise you nobody in this room was one of those girls that I saw taking pictures of themselves but if you have been that girl before if you have been that dude like Instagramming your bible or something maybe to say that out loud maybe you'll just feel a little weirder doing it next time I don't know but 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 confess your sins and repent of your sins of idolatry whatever that may be for the next few minutes and then we'll close with the song